Did I request thee, maker, from my clay to mold me man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? Adam's complaint against God in John Milton's Paradise Lost. Milton was probably a Unitarian, didn't think about God the way Catholics think about God, but it had a tremendous effect on English religion, and especially on the writing of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So what does the great novel Frankenstein, written in 1818, have to do with this weekend's gospel about table fellowship, where you sit and who do you invite? More in a moment from Oral Valley Catholic. Frankenstein, the novel, was first published in 1818. Uh, Mary had start, Mary Shelley had started to write it a few years before. If you look at the original um, versions and show some of the, the editing changes, clearly her husband, uh, who at the time was essentially an unknown poet, Percy Bysshe Shelley, he's become much more famous since, uh, put in all his edits. But Mary was apparently a believer of some stripe, uh, probably not how we'd understand it as, uh, as Orthodox Catholics. Uh, but Shelley was an atheist, and he wanted to make it an atheist novel about the human being uh, taking its place uh, you know, as the new god in this mechanistic universe. In fact, her dad, William Godwin, was an anarchist and atheist. They were part of this radical group at the beginning of the 19th century that was always this undercurrent in Victorian society. Her mom, Mary Wollstonecraft, and I did a podcast about her, author in 1792 of uh, the first real feminist tract in English, Vindication of the Rights of Women, which is a great book, and she is a very noble character in my understanding. But Mary Wollstonecraft dies uh, in giving birth to Mary Shelley like two weeks later of an infection following uh, the birth of Mary Shelley. And then Mary Shelley had to endure her father, William Godwin's stories about Mary Wollstonecraft, which were not very fair to her, nor representing uh, her views on marriage or her views about uh, equality of men and women, and especially about the education of women. Uh, just a very troubled family. She meets Percy Bysshe Shelley when he is just recently married, but Shelley has made an unhappy marriage. Uh, Mary Shelley is about 15 when they meet, and uh, Percy Bysshe is over 20. So this is, by modern standards, child molestation. They may have consummated their love in St. Pancras Cemetery in a very bohemian way, uh, very near her mom's uh, grave. So losing her mom obviously had a huge impact on her. Her half-sister, Fanny Imlay, who is uh, her, her sister by another relationship her mom had had with an American named Gilbert Imlay, who was really horrible to Mary Wollstonecraft. So she just comes out of all of this difficult background. Uh, Fanny Imlay, the half-sister, ends up committing suicide after Mary and a stepsister named uh, Claremont, uh, Claire Claremont, I think is the name, escape with Percy Bysshe Shelley to um, 
uh, to the continent. Uh, and her father, William Godwin, who believes in free love, disowns her because she's practiced what the old man preaches. There are just all these father issues in Mary's, um, in Mary's life. And they all show up in Frankenstein also about uh, who is father. Uh, Mary Shelley's a very modern person. Well, like I said, her half-sister commits suicide because she feels abandoned uh, with William Godwin, who just does not sound like somebody you want as a dad. Um, Mary starts writing Frankenstein after she gives birth to her first child um, in this uh, relationship with Percy Bysshe Shelley, where she finally gets married after Percy Bysshe's wife, Harriet, I think her name is, commits suicide in London. And they get married in this crummy service in the church. So poor Mary always had this kind of second-rate relationship with Percy Bysshe Shelley. She wakes up two weeks after her baby's born, her baby's dead. Then her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley, who is going to drown in a couple years anyway, uh, tells her that she's become so distant. Can you imagine that? She's lost this baby. And so he apparently starts an affair with either her half-sister or this other woman. They, the scholars still debate about it. But the reason of pointing about all of that is, think of all the issues Mary Shelley has emotionally with her mom's death, her, the kind of guy she has as a father, and who she's married. So now think about this, about creation and creatures and inhumanity and the story of Frankenstein, which probably doesn't sound much like any Frankenstein movie that you've seen. Here's the, the story of Frankenstein, which I just read on my recent vacation and thought, wow, what a great book. Anyway, Robert Walton, an explorer, is telling how he has met in, a, in letters he's writing to his sister who lives back in England. Uh, he's telling you that he's met Victor Frankenstein, Walton is some kind of failed writer who has decided he's going to explore the North Pole, apparently. So he hires a boat with a bunch of sailors and heads up north. He finds this guy floating on this ice floe. And this guy tells him his name is Victor Frankenstein. Um, this is not like uh, Gene Wilder's movie where he says Frankenstein. No, he says Frankenstein. Um, and he's explaining how he came to be uh, just floating around almost dead on this iceberg. And so he tells about his uh, background growing up in Geneva. And he has this like idyllic uh, childhood. He loves his dad. He loves his mom. They're wonderful people. He has a sister named uh, Elizabeth. Actually, I think she's adopted into the family because uh, he wants to marry her later in the book. So it's not incest. They're just... Uh, living, uh, their parents have taken a beautiful Elizabeth in, who's a wonderful child. Then his mom dies of fever just before he leaves the university. One of the key things is he starts to get into alchemy and all these books about bringing a life to inanimate things. And his father, this is the father issue, tells him, don't waste your time with that. Uh, there's no good that goes down that road. But Victor can't get loose of the idea that he might be able to create life. So he goes off to the university, Germany, where he starts kind of experimenting with all this. So he goes and he robs graves, and Victor uses these dead bodies, which he puts together. He decides he has to make it gigantic because 
it's too hard to work with all the small parts that go into human bodies. So he has to make it bigger. And so it becomes this monster size. You know, it's interesting in the book, there's no electricity involved. There's no whirling machines. All the stuff we might remember from various movies, um, there's just alchemy. And then at some point, at his laying at his feet is this yellowish monster who opens up his eyes and looks at him. Dr. Frankenstein is so disgusted by this creature, this creature, that he runs away. First thing about a father, okay? Rejection of what he's created. Where God in Genesis would call the man that he created very good. Victor Frankenstein looks at his creation and says by his actions, very bad. So the father issues that are involved in this novel. Well, anyway, disgusted, he runs away. So he figures out that the monsters escaped because when he goes back to his apartment or where he was doing these experiments, the monster is long gone. And so the monster, uh, he figures out, has killed his little brother, William, and pinned it on a woman named Justine Moritz, who has like been a nanny that the Frankensteins in Geneva hired to take care of little William. Justine says she's innocent, but nobody knows anybody else that could possibly have done this stuff. So he believes it's the monster. Now, we're back to Robert Walton and, um, and uh, on, the, on the, this flow of ice. How does Dr. Frankenstein, after learning of the murder of his brother uh, uh, William, get up to the North Pole? Well, the monster kills his best friend, Cherval. The monster kills Elizabeth on his wedding night. And so he decides that the monster must be destroyed. Um, although it, they just call him the creature, there is no name that this creature has, which in itself is interesting. If Victor is his creator, his father, he never gives the creature a name. The creature never has a name. It's just referred to as the creature. So what happens is on the ship, uh, Dr. Frankenstein dies. Robert Walton, if you remember, is this failed writer that's hired this ship, discovers the body up near the North Pole. He goes in to pay his last respects to uh, Dr. Frankenstein, uh, Victor Frankenstein, who's dead. His whole family's been murdered by this creature. And who's sitting right next to the bedside? It's uh, the creature. And so then the creature talks to him. And the creature is very articulate talks like a wonderfully educated 19th century uh, noble person. How did he learn that? Because this is the, this is the involvement of J.J. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, who has a huge impact in the early 19th and late 18th century. But um, he met a family, and uh, by watching them, he learned to speak, and he learned to read. An, an improbable story, but this is the novel. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft was very interested in child, children's education and the example of good adults, mother and father in a child's life. Maybe that's where Mary Shelley picked it up. Um, but also the monster learned how unjust life was. Because Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, we come into the world a tabula rasa, a complete blank slate. And what we learn, good or bad, uh, comes to us from other people. And there's a kind of a truth to that. Um, but the falsehood is that somehow we're just a blank slate. 
Because, you know, Christianity is we come into the world slightly morally deformed. And our education can tweak us one way or the other. But this is not Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. The reason the monster becomes cruel is because the family that he learned to read from rejected him. When he went into a village, he was rejected and people threw rocks at him. He was hated by his creator. And so he's received nothing good from life. And so what he tells uh, Robert Walton, he says, this is what I've gotten from people. This is what I give back to my creator. I've destroyed him. And then at the end of the book, because the creature has destroyed his creator, Victor Frankenstein, uh, then he exits the window of the ship back out into the ice where he will seek his own death frozen in the darkness. End scene. That's the story of Frankenstein. And if you paid attention to it, there's father issues in it. There's issues about what it means to be a human being. But fundamentally what the story of Frankenstein's about is uh, what limits, if at all, are on human beings. Do you remember Victor Frankenstein's father told him not to pursue alchemy because there are just certain things that human beings aren't supposed to do? But when Victor transgresses the limits of moral action, uh, he creates a process, a creature, which destroys his entire life and ultimately destroys him. This is the deep story behind, uh, behind Frankenstein. So fundamentally, as a Christian, how would you look at that? Here's what humility is. Humility is knowing who you are in relationship to God and others. Humility is the refusal to tell lies to yourself or others about who you are. Humility is having both feet firmly on the ground. So before I finish talking about Frankenstein, I'd like to take a moment and talk about the gospel because the gospel this weekend is very much about humility. At the heart of the gospel from Luke 14 this weekend is the understandings of Christian humility and our duties about those on a wing, the little, the lame, the crippled, the blind that Jesus talks about. Because it's a very different attitude from the attitude of Victor Frankenstein, or I would say most of the people in Mary Shelley's life. Uh, her novel is very critical of this central role that these men in her life assign to herself. She is very much her mother's daughter. Um, and so the gospel from Luke 14. On a Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and the people there were observing him carefully. He told a parable to those who had been invited, noticing how they were choosing the places of honor at the table. When you were invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not recline at table in the place of honor. A more distinguished guest than you may have been invited by him. And the host who invited both of you may approach you and say, give your place to this man. And then you would proceed with embarrassment to take the lowest place. Rather, when you're invited, go and take the lowest place so that when the host comes to you, he may say, my friend, move up to a higher position. Then you will enjoy the esteem of your companions at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he said to the host who invited him, 
When you hold a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your wealthy neighbors in case they may invite you back and you have repayment. Rather, when you hold a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Blessed indeed will you be because of their inability to repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The gospel of the Lord. Pray to you, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's two stories there. So Jesus is invited to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are thought of in that first century uh, context as being the holy ones of Israel. They were very popular. Uh, they were sincere. They were very dedicated to the law. And so when Jesus is invited to this dinner, and I'm just pointing out for what it's worth, is everybody would like to meet Jesus. What I'd say is, is having him as a dinner guest can be kind of uncomfortable because he just says it the way it really is. Humility is like that. And so he tells two stories. One he addressed to the hosts and says, uh, you know, look at, uh, uh, one he addresses to the guests, and he says, you're all jockeying for position. You know, who gets to sit at the head of the table? Uh, this is all about honor. Just think of it. We're created beings and what Jesus is criticizing is people who are ranking themselves and judging themselves, not about whether they're more lowly or more sinful than other people, but about why they're better than this other guy. That's the big problem that Jesus is pointing to as people jockey for position at this prominent dinner with this prominent rabbi named Jesus. So he says, you know, real humility is just sit in the back of the, back of the church. No, I'm not saying sit up in front. There's real humility. But uh, sit at the lowest table. He says, it, wouldn't it be much more satisfying that other people saw virtue in you and wanted to move you up higher, invite you to a better place? I mean, if you've got to go around and toot your own horn, you know, what value does that really have? Doesn't it really matter when, what other people say about you, how they think about you? This is the story of Jesus and his guests. Humility is about taking your place in human society and before God. Um, and then Jesus turns and he talks to the host after he's talked to the guests about jockeying for position. And he says, a corollary. Why do you invite people um, that are just gonna look good at your table? Why don't you invite the people that God loves? the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. Now that's pretty challenging. I've been to a lot of dinner parties and rarely do people go out to the homeless and invite them in. But these stories are very much about how it is that we think about other people, recognizing that the story of creation is really not about us. We just play a role in it. And as we think about how we judge ourselves against other people, and we judge people that we think that we're superior to, Jesus is challenging all of this. And I think it's because it's the image of Dr. Victor Frankenstein. When God creates us, he says, very good. When uh, Victor Frankenstein looks out the world, especially the creature he's made and what he does, he says, very bad. And so if you were to sit at a table where you weren't noticed, and you were sitting at people that wouldn't maybe be your first choice for dinner companions, um, does it change much if you think, yeah, this is exactly where I should be? 
God wants me to learn something about this. You know, um, it's being like your creator that God makes the sun rise on everybody in the world. And so when we think we'll take the top honors for ourselves and ignore all of those that we think are less than us for any reasons from their moral choices to their socioeconomic situation or their political beliefs, if you had to ask yourself, are you more like Victor Frankenstein or are you more like God the Father and his son Jesus? Because this is the choice you get to make. It's one of the things that makes uh, Frankenstein a great novel. But I'd like to conclude with a couple of observations about Frankenstein and uh, pursuing the life of humility with maybe some, um, some suggestions about uh, books I've read that I thought are particularly good. So know in your place at the table, be careful who you invite into your life and think of inviting the people that the Lord wants you to invite in your life. So Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin Shelley, um, she comes up with one of the most famous novels ever written, Frankenstein. We've already gone through all the ways that it's uh, been carried out through Western culture, but the book puts everything else pretty much to shame. You know, there's a great uh, series of books, if you're not familiar with it, called The Ignatius Critical Editions by Ignatius Press. And they do these classic works of literature. Frankenstein is one of them. It's the copy I read. And it gives you a nice preface explaining all the themes of Frankenstein, then four or five essays after you've read the book that help you understand it at a different level. Tremendously satisfying way to read through the book. Because you can read Frankenstein as this woman who is a uh, 18th century feminist and her dad's telling her what to do and he's an atheist. Her husband's telling her what to do and he's cheating on her. Uh, and she ends up producing a book that's still being read. They make movies of it, which they couldn't even imagine at the beginning of the 18th century. And people know William Godwin as an historical figure, but nobody reads him. You may have read a Percy Bysshe Shelley poem like Ozymandias or something like that, but I doubt you've read uh, all of his poems or ever want to. But Frankenstein, that's a book that captures this woman's dilemma in the beginning of the 18th century. It's when men try to be God. You can tell the same story about women trying to be God. Um, but it ultimately is really about humility before God our Savior. So here's another book I want to recommend to you. It's called Humility Rules. It's the 12-step guide to true self-esteem. I'd say self-respect. Learning to love who you are sitting at that table um, that God's invited to you. And the way that the 12 steps are organized by J. Augustine Weta, W-E-T-T-A, um, is uh, around St. Bernard's Cl of Clairvaux's 12 steps. Uh, to humility. He was a medieval figure, but based on St. Augustine's, uh, St. Benedict's rule, um, Father Weta is, a, is a definitely a Benedictine nun, but a nun, I'm sorry, Benedictine monk. Uh, a nun is a female monk. So anyway, a nun could have written this book, but she didn't. Um, Father Weta did. 
But at every step, he says, think about it in terms of thought, word, and in deed. And so this is one of the things that I, I really liked about his book. He tells a story about himself and the novitiate. And here's what he said. When I first entered the novitiate here at St. Louis Abbey, the day I'm recording this is the Feast of St. Louis, so this nice, nice, nicely fits. My novice master asked me, what do you have to offer that would make us want to take you? I told him I was smart, hardworking, and clean. And the abbot said, you're not ready. Every day he would ask me the same question, and every day I would think of some other admirable quality, and every day he would tell me I wasn't ready. Finally, after one particularly rough morning, I told him I had nothing to offer. Now you're ready, he said. We shouldn't be in the habit of thinking that Jesus would be grateful for our friendship. We should love him, but we should also be in awe of him. His very name has all the power of the Holy Word revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, a word so sacred that pious Jews do not dare to speak it aloud. And of course, we should never use that name as a curse. Don't get me wrong. Our ultimate objective is to discover the perfect love that casts out fear, 1 John chapter 4. But be careful that you don't wind up sliding into a comfortable familiarity that drives out respect for God. As blessed John Henry Newman said, fear and love must go together. Always fear, always love to your dying day. There's a good rule for life. Um, always love your spouse and your family. Always fear that you might offend them. God might find that very, very pleasing. And so here's uh, Father Weta's advice if you want to start working on uh, humility. He says, let someone less competent than, than you tell you what to do. <laughs> okay, that's a tough one. So there's some homework to do. Uh, Ignatius, Critical Editions, version of Frankenstein. I think you would enjoy it. I know you would love Father Etweta's book, Humility Rules, 12 Steps to True Self-Esteem. He's a surfer. He tells a lot of surfing stories. Uh, really a, a, a fun read if you're looking for some spiritual literature uh, that you could just do a little bit at a time each day and come out with something that you could try to do that day. Who knows what the effect is on you? Um, because at the end of the day, is uh, God knows where you fit in at that table. And you already know who's going to be invited to that party. Uh, so when you think about the story of Frankenstein and you think about humility, is who do you really want to emulate in your life? Dr. Victor Frankenstein or the true God? I'd say it's a no-brainer. This has been Oro Valley Catholic Father John Arnold. Give me a like if you can. Thanks. Bye-bye.